You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. And today, we have a good one in store for you today. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about cubital tunnel syndrome. Um, and joining us, we have Dr. Kantimika with us, uh, a little bit more about Dr. Kantimika. She did her residency at uh, Loyola and did her first fellowship in hand and upper extremity at the Mayo Clinic, and then did a traveling fellowship in Europe, uh, which I hope to further uh, dive a little bit deeper into. Uh, but, but Dr. Contamika, welcome to the Nailed It Ortho podcast. I'm so happy to have you on and thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. I feel honored. This is such a, a cool concept. Yeah, and I, I know we're talking a little bit before we got on air about some things, uh, I know we wanted to dive a little bit deeper into it. Um, but first, I'll kind of just talk to you a little bit. And, and, you know, we always ask questions, to try to get to know our guests a little bit before we get into the ortho talk. Um, so what made you choose hand? And I know we we're talking a little bit before about, you know, the wide breadth of what you do, if you want to mention that, but what kind of made you choose that specialty? Yeah, it, it's hard, right? You're in your third year and you're supposed to make this big decision of what you're going to do with the rest of your life and you may or may not have done every subspecialty before then and then you had to apply for fellowship and feel daunting um i knew that i wanted to do outpatient surgery um i knew that i wanted something where there's a lot of different types of cases i just didn't want to get bored didn't want to do the same two or four surgeries over and over and over again. Um, and so I found with hand, you could have a good variety of short cases, long cases. Um, you can do even inpatient cases from time to time if you'd like. And the trauma was really interesting. Uh, I ended up choosing to do something that included the whole extremity. So I do clavicle to fingertip. Uh, so shoulders, elbows, hands, wrists, anything um, in between, I, I will do. So from a shoulder replacement to an elbow scope to a trigger finger, um, I kind of do it all. And I like it, one, because of the diversity, but two, you get to treat patients for a lot more than one or two problems. So you really get to know your patients and they, they will come back to you for a variety of different issues, which is nice. So that's kind of why I chose hand to make it really short and simple. No, I think that's pretty neat because there's a, in some places, there can be a misconception like, okay, well, you choose hand most, you know, almost every day you'll be doing carpal tunnels and trigger fingers and occasionally you may get, you know, something else thrown in there. So I think it's good to hear that you do total elbows, tendon transfers. I know you said you do some shoulder scopes, elbow scopes, trigger fingers. So I think, you know, that whole having a practice that has that whole, you know, wide variety is pretty cool. And it kind of helps you hone, you know, all your different skills. So, uh, uh, you know, I think that's pretty cool. And um, so moving on to the next question that I have for you is I'm very interested and you piqued my interest when you mentioned that you did a traveling fellowship. So can you kind of talk about, you know, what that experience was like? And I know you said you'd recommend it. Why would you recommend it? And, and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so after I had finished my fellowship at Mayo Clinic, um, before I started practice, I took three or four months off to go do a traveling fellowship in Europe. And it was a sponsored ones, and you can find ones that are not sponsored. And there are ones like AO has quite a few um, traveling fellowships that you can do. Um, but this one was called the Schwartz Traveling Fellowship, and I had um, submitted a application and was um, accepted for this fellowship. And I went to Belgium to work with Roger Van Riet um, on elbow, and he does only elbow. Can you imagine having a practice where all you do is elbow all day long? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so he's really good at elbow because that's all he does. And it was, it was just absolutely amazing to see what they were doing in Europe and, and you get to scrub in, in Europe. It's not, they don't have the same roles as we have here in the United States. And then I went to Paris and I worked with the late uh, Philippe Hardy and did shoulder with him. And it was just crazy to see, um, you know, what they were doing in France because they're just well above, 
ahead of us um, with shoulder there. I mean, ladder J's were considered a, you know, junior resident case. <laughs> so oh, I had really? the, wow. Yes, I had the junior residents walk me through it. And a ladder <laughs> would take them less than 30 minutes. I mean, they were just like, you would think that it was like, they were, you know, doing a trapeziectomy. It was just amazing. Um, and then I went to Italy afterwards um, for a conference and to do the research side of everything. So it was a really, really good experience. Um, I still stay in touch with my mentors and, and uh, um, a lot of friends that I made. Um, I've written a couple book chapters, done some research with them since then. So it's been, you know, the building of a long-term relationship. And I, I highly recommend everyone if you get the opportunity to do something. And, you know, even if it's a couple weeks, you go spend it in Australia or Japan, wherever, and get to know some other surgeons. It's great mentorship and it's a great opportunity to see what other people are doing. And you don't have to do it right after fellowship. I mean, you could be in practice anytime. Um, I'm actually going to be doing another traveling fellowship next year and we'll be going to Canada and Australia uh, for that traveling fellowship. So um, one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten was from one of my mentors who said, you know, wherever you go, take a day and see what people in that city are doing. So, you know, my husband is an orthopedic surgeon and when he was in fellowship and I was in practice, I went down to visit him and I visited some of the hand surgeons that were at the same institution. Um, and it was great. I learned some stuff from them, some new tricks and tips. Um, and it's nice to learn in practice because you don't get to see a lot of people doing things anymore and learn. So I recommend it. And, and these trial, the traveling fellowship you got, you said it was sponsored. Did you have to pay for flight or hotels or anything or, uh, well, or it was a whole thing? Or Yeah, yeah they give you a certain amount of money. And then after that, you're on your own. So you can, okay. you can make what you want of that. Um, yeah. I'm sure you could spend all of it very quickly and then, and then some, but uh, there are traveling fellowships, like I said, the AO ones, um, where they will sponsor you. But you can always do one on your own where you can make it relatively inexpensive to go spend some time with another surgeon um, for a couple of weeks after you graduate or whenever. Oh, yeah, that's pretty neat. Yeah. For those looking that are listening to this that have never um, heard of that, that may be something that piqued your interest as it piqued mine. So we'll see in the future if I do one. But um, I, I am interested. I'll say that. <laughs> and and uh, last question: Do you have any interests outside of the field of orthopedic surgery? Things you like to do? Oh my gosh! Yes, of course. Um, yeah. So I, first of all, I, I'm married. Have two dogs, two kids. So spending time with my family is um, absolutely precious. So anytime I can be with them, either going on a bike ride or hiking, um, that's great. I love love, love the food scene in Chicago. So we have great food. Um, New York, eat your heart out. We have some awesome Michelin stars. So um, it's nice to explore those. And then I also like to travel. My husband and I like to go international. Um, we, we've taken our kids um, all over the country and a couple places um, outside of the country um, and had a great time exploring as a family. So um, that's something we like to do, including scuba diving. So, and skiing. Oh, nice. Yeah, so you got to have your winter and summer sports. So those are ours. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I have not. I mean, snorkeling in many places, but not <laughs> real scuba diving. <laughs> you should do it. Honestly, go, go find a nice beach. And I mean, think about you can socially distance quite easily. Very um, true. In the ocean. So there you go. Very true. I'm loving it. I love the answer. So uh, on that note, let us switch gears and talk a little bit about, you know, cubital tunnel syndrome, uh, pretty much what we're here for today. And I just have just a general case because I, I did hand not too long ago, and this is how a lot of them uh, presented. Let's say, for example, a, a doctor uh, that a 45-year-old female, uh, history of diabetes, presented to your office due to hand numbness that she noted uh, mostly in the morning time after she sleeps. And I know we're there's a long list of differential diagnoses that can be, but we're talking about cubital tunnel syndrome. But before we get to all the way, you know, the history and physical exam findings, can we kind of just touch base on uh, some of the pertinent anatomy when we're, when we're even thinking about cubital tunnel syndrome? Yeah, I, you know, you have to go into each 
um, nerve compression in the upper extremity as different. So carpal tunnel is not the same as cubital tunnel, which is not the same as radial tunnel, et cetera. Not just because they're different nerves, but the nerves behave differently. And the way that they're compressed is, is different as well. So when you look at the ulnar nerve, the most common area of compression is at the elbow. That doesn't mean it's the only place that it can be compressed, but it's just the most common. Um, and why that happens is that the, the ulnar nerve runs posterior. Um, and when it runs posterior and you have flexion of your arm, it causes a traction or a compression of the nerve. And so this is really a dynamic type of compression, which sometimes can make it really hard to diagnose. Um, and when it gets compressed with flexion, um, it can flatten out the nerve and it also makes the actual cubital tunnel proper change um, in size and in uh, geometry itself. It goes from you know, more of a circular to uh, a flatter, more trapezoidal um, shape. And when it goes um, into flexion, uh, that also has the pressure go up. Um, most uh, increased at 90 degrees and the decreased um, lowest amount of pressure at 40 to 50 degrees, which is really funny that we're talking about this because I was just taking my um, continuing education uh, for your board recertification. And that was a question on oh, that recertification. Oh. So there we go. Uh, so you're welcome for anyone <laughs> who's actually outside of residency listening to this. 40 to 50 degrees is the least uh, amount of pressure in the cubital canal. Like it. Yeah, there you go. So points of compression, all of the, you know, we love to talk about these. They love to be on OITs, but I think that's actually really important to think about um, because on physical exam, sometimes you can actually diagnose where they're actually being compressed. Um, right. Most proximal about uh, six centimeters proximal to the medial epicondyle, you'll see the arcade of Struthers. And some people even argue if that's really there, I do think that that fascial point of compression as it comes out um, uh, through that fascia is, is true. Um, and it's a fascia between the triceps um, and, and the intermuscular septum. The, the area of compression that's most missed and I've had to do revisions for is the intermuscular septum. And the reason why is a lot of people don't release that intermuscular septum. It's really important to release it because it's this taut um, piece of fascia. And the next time you examine a patient, um, I would encourage you to feel the medial epicondyle and just go a little bit proximal to it with the patient and a little bit of flexion. And you'll feel like this guitar string. It's really, really strong um, piece of septum and that's the intermuscular septum. And I always, I always tell people you have to release it. And when you release it, you actually see it almost like spring open because there's so much uh, pressure on it. Um, so then as you go through um, more distal, you'll go to the medial epicondyle and then um, over to um, the Osborne fascia. The Osborne fascia is actually the uh, most common uh, point of compression. And um, that is, again, it goes from the medial condyle, epicondyle, and then it goes to the olecranon um, and the FCU. So um, with releasing it, you'll see this really thick fascia and you'll know when you release that Osborne fascia. And then from there, that brings you down to the FCU. It's the two heads of the FCU. And when you get there, um, another mistake people make is there's two fascias. There's the FDS fascia, and then between the two heads of the FCU, you'll see a, a deeper fascia. And I think that deeper fascia is generally missed because people will release that more superficial fascia and think that they're done, but you're not done. There's that secondary fascia that has to be released. Okay. And in, in reading, a lot of times you'll, uh, I, I've, I've seen the term and the Anconius epichocliaris. In your experience, is that something, is that ever a side of compression or something that you have to release or is it more just kind of cerebral for reading and, and knowing purposes? 
you know, I, right. You, you, unless you've seen it, you think it's just this like this annoying thing that hand surgeons like to talk about so that they sound like our cubital tunnel is more tricky than it is, but it's actually a real thing. And I've seen it in my patients and Ah. it's usually, it's usually these patients who sometimes they'll complain of snapping, but they'll have a stable nerve. Um, and you'll see with, um, flexion extension, this extra muscle just flipping over the nerve. And you can actually see from the picture on the screen, um, for those who actually can't see the screen, um, you'll see that the triceps is posterior to the nerve, but sometimes what happens with flexion, you'll see this muscle flip over onto the nerve and you can see how this can be a really, um, true dynamic compression. And, um, you end up just taking out that extra piece of muscle so that there's nothing compressing the nerve inflection extension. Um, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of people struggle with some of the, um, uh, exams of cubital tunnel because this is, is truly a, a, a dynamic, um, type of compression. So when you use things like EMGs, which is a static type test, it won't catch dynamic type compressions of the nerve. Mm. Okay. That makes sense. So kind of just to, to reiterate or, or summarize everything you're talking about going from proximal to distal, the distal a proximal side compression is kind of that arcade of Struthers fascia. And then you have um, that that intermuscular. I was actually feeling for mine when you when you were describing it. Uh, I think I found it. I think I did. I hope those that are listening are, are finding theirs and yeah. being in awe. Um, but we have that arcadus struthers, and then we have uh, more distal as we go, kind of just posterior to the medial epicondyle, that that Osborne ligament or that Osborne's fascia. And then sometimes you have that anconius epitrochlearis, which is kind of like you were saying, some kind of that dynamic. Uh, that dynamic compression. Then you have your FCU, uh, which you should know about the, you know, don't forget about that deep fashion and the FDS fashion as well. Now, patients that come in that you're considering, you know, your diagnosis for cubital tunnel syndrome, what else is on your differential diagnosis? You know, as doctors, we all have to have a differential of what some things could possibly be, but what are some other things that you're thinking of when you see this? Yeah. Yeah. It's important, right? Because you don't want to have this knee jerk that every time you hear somebody having some numbness and tingling in their small and ring finger that, oh, it's cubital tunnel. Cause if you do that, you can miss a lot of things. Um, one is, you know, double crush. It could be cervical um, or cervical and cubital tunnel. And that's important to understand. So if they're having symptoms that are starting from the neck and radiating down, um, or they say sometimes radiating up and they're, and they've had a history of of uh, neck pain, um, I would make sure that you don't, you rule out any type of cervical etiology. Not as common, but it can be thoracic outlet syndrome. It's kind of one of those things that everyone's like, oh, it's that, it may be thoracic outlet syndrome. And so right. rarely it actually is. Um, you can have uh, Guillain's canal compression of the nerve. And that's usually that, um, just so you can get this correct on the OITEs is it's the number one cause of um, compression Guillain's canal is because of a ganglion cyst. Mm. So um, what you ask patients is, do you have numbness and tingling on the dorsum of your hand? And the reason why that's important is that sensory branch of the ulnar nerve branches off before Guillain's canal. So if they have compression at Guillain's canal, they will not have that numbness on the dorsum of the wrist. That's only when it's more proximal at the elbow. That Uh, is a gem. Yeah, there you go. You're welcome. That was a gem right there. (laughs) One of those that right on the OIT or when they're trying to get pimped by their hand attending, you're welcome. We've gotten at least three or four questions so far already. All right, good. Um, And then other things is um, you can have an unstable ulnar nerve. um, And that's kind of falls into the, you know, the idea of is this cubital tunnel. And so I think it's important because people will say they have a snapping elbow and people forget to check the stability of the nerve. And that snapping elbow or the unstable nerve can rub over the medial epicondyle. And that can be an etiology of medial epicondylitis. Um, And you'll see these patients with really boggy and swollen and extremely tender um, medial aspects of their elbow. Um, And they can have, um, this could be because they've caused a bursa from 
the nerve stabbing um, back and forth, or it can be from true just medial epicondylitis that's isolated from Guillain-Canal. So it's important because, or sorry, from carp, uh, the cubital tunnel. So it's important to feel if that tenderness is more posterior because you can have pain and tenderness with cubital tunnel. It's not always described that way, but I see it commonly with patients and it'd be completely separate from their epicondyle. And then you have to have it feel along their medial epicondyle or have them flex up their wrist and, um, and do resisted wrist flexion to see if they have um, some type of golfer's elbow or medial epicondylitis. Um, and there can be also some type of interarticular um, um, involvement like ulnohumeral arthritis or um, loose bodies, et cetera. So, um, you know, don't forget that there can be other things going on around the elbow or in the extremity proper. Okay. And since we're doing such a great job going over differential diagnoses and kind of the histories behind them, uh, let's concentrate on acute tunnel syndrome. And what are some of the pertinent things that you ask uh, patients when you're concerned about cubital tunnel syndrome? Yeah. So the first thing is I ask them how long their symptoms have been going on. One of the things about cubital tunnel that I find very interesting, and it hasn't really been explored too much, but Patients with cubital tunnel will all of a sudden um, progress really quickly. And that's a poor prognostic factor for me where like someone says, I didn't have this. And then a month ago it started happening and now my hand's clawing. And you're like, wait, hmm. that happened really, really quickly. And that can happen with cubital tunnel. You don't really see that happen with carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel, it's always a slow progressive thing. Um, but with cubital tunnel, just snap, it happened. Um, so that's a huge, that's one of the questions I always ask is how long is this happening? Which fingers are involved? Um, again, you want that to be the, the small finger and half the ring finger, the ulnar side of the ring finger. And then I ask about um, the dorsum of the wrist to see if that, or dorsum of the hand, to see if, you know, the more proximal compression is what's happening. Um, if they've had a change in behaviors, like the way they're sleeping or if they've been moving, changing jobs, et cetera. Um, and then I ask them about dropping things and, and dexterity of their hands, because that gives me an idea of intrinsics are involved, which means that they're, they're in a later stage of um, cubital tunnel. And then obviously ask about neck symptoms, stuff like that, just for your differential diagnosis. And so once you've gone through, you know, asking your questions and, and getting a thorough history, what are some of the things, like when you go to examine a patient, what are you looking for and what, what tests are you doing on them? So the first thing I look at their hands, you just want to look to see if there's any atrophy, if they're clawing and their clawing is usually involving the ring and small fingers. And you'll see um, um, hyperextension at the MCPs with um, flexion at the PIP joints. And it's actually the deformity is worse with um, a more distal um, ulnar nerve uh, injury or compression. So Guillain's or distal is gonna be worse of a claw hand than if it is proximal, which is counterintuitive to me, but um, that's just something to remember. So sometimes they have like only a slight claw hand um, with cubal tunnel. I also um, will look to see if they have a Wartenberg. So if their small finger is abducted um, and they're not able to adduct it in, um, so those are all the things I kind of appreciate with looking at their hands. Um, with Wartenberg's, you can test it further by having their fingers abduct, and then you ask them to adduct them. And when you adduct it, the small finger will be abducted out. Um, I also ask for fromance. Fromance is um, you basically have both of their thumbs, and I like to do both because then you have the other side to compare it to. And I do the same thing on the other side of the paper, so I will hold it and pinch it between my index finger, my thumb. And then I'll ask them to do the same thing and I ask them to pull it. And if they start sliding through their fingers, to me, that shows me that they already have some weakness. Even if their fromance is negative, um, it shows me that they're starting to have some muscle involvement. But then it, for them to have a positive fromance, they'll start flexing at the IP joint. And the reason why is because their ulnar um, intrinsics are not working. So they have to compensate with their FPL and the FPL flexes down to try to um, pinch. And it's not as effective of a pinch muscle as the adductor is. 
And that's uh, why you'll see them do that and it still falls out of their hands. Because I, I read this a couple of times. Now I'm still confused. So I was just going to wait to ask you about it. Yeah, let's do it. But, What's the question? So, no, no, I think you just explained it very well. Oh, so typically you have your adductors um, that, that kind of help you with that pinch. But you're saying now that you know, our ulnar nerve is compromised or, or something's going with our ulnar nerve that we don't have our adductors. And to compensate for that, our FPL, uh, I guess, kind of takes over and you get that flexion of your IP uh, at their IP joint of your thumb in comparison to kind of just that flat thumb and you being able to pin something. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. So you're, it's you're yes, exactly. So you're trying to use your FPL to compensate and the FPL is just not meant for pinch. And, and so it's, it's not as successful as your adductor. So it can work for simple things, but when you're pulling, they, they won't be able to really hold the paper there. And then that IP will be um, flexed up. Okay. And are there, what's, I guess I was reading about um, Gene's sign. I, I might've mispronounced it, but what is, uh, what is that? And, and what does that kind of signify? Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's funny. I don't actually use this when I examine your patients. You have to get your key mm. ones that you try so that you can uh, figure out what's going to be your go-tos when you're, when you're in practice. And this is not one I use. Uh. But okay. basically, you know, it's just the EPL hyperextends at the MCP joint. And it's just because you're trying to compensate. Um, and it's because you're right, you don't have the musculature you need uh, for, for your um, fingers to work. So you don't have that dexterity. Mm. And, and then I always see about like the, uh, the scratch and collapse test. What, like, what is that? Do you use that? Or, or you know, what, you know, it's like funny that you say that. So it's, it's becoming really a lot more popular in the hand society. And um, the reality is, is that um, it's still kind of controversial. I don't think it's as controversial as it used to be. I think it's becoming more accepted and, and it's a really fascinating phenomenon. And you can use it, uh, the, you know, the scratch collapse test for other things besides cubital tunnel, but I would encourage people to try it with cubital tunnel. And basically what you do is you have your patient put their arms out, um, you know, elbows at 90 degrees, like you're testing external rotation and you have them do external rotation and press about at your, um, your hands. And um, you just, you first have them do that. And then you just touch or you kind of um, not really scratch, but kind of just lightly <laughs> touch the medial side of the elbow at the cubital tunnel. And then you ask them to external rotate again while you're resisting them. And they, they can't, like they actually, you can overcome them. Whereas before you couldn't. And it's, it's basically you, it's like a mind, Jedi mind trick to the nerve. Ah. Yeah, there you go. We get a little, star, you know, a little, little Star Wars sci-fi. Yeah, so you basically are confusing the nerve, and it is it, and it causes it to collapse and not function. And so you're able to internally rotate or overcome the patient, um, and and that's a way of showing that there is compression at the nerve. Ah, okay. And do you ever use a, a Tunnels um, sign, or do you ever use a Tunnels around the for the, around the cubital tunnel? Yeah, I do. And I actually, the reason why I use it more, more often than not is to try to figure out where the compression is, because sometimes the compression is at the medial, um, at the intermuscular septum, excuse me. And, um, not that I'm not going to, uh, decompress it, but it's just nice to know, um, where they're having their, their, um, their sensitivity, but I will test them. I also do the flexion, um, test and I also will do, um, full extension and full flexion of the elbow to see if there's stability of the nerve. I think that's really important to know. So, so can we uh, just quickly dive in a little bit deeper into that? So do, do you have your hand on the ulnar nerve while you flex and extend their elbow just to see if it, if it, if it subluxes anterior to the condyle, is that what you're looking at or is it something else that you're looking at? Yeah. So I actually wouldn't put the, your finger on the nerve because you ah. can stop it from being unstable. So you can stabilize the nerve with your finger. Um, so I actually would recommend for you to put it on the medial. I usually feel it when in full extension is where I'll start. And I'll feel for the nerve to see that I feel that it's posterior. 
And then I put my finger onto the medial epicondyle and I feel if it snaps on there. And that would be the first thing. And if it grossly is unstable, you're gonna feel it hit, hit over. And then the second time I'll put my hand, I'll see again where the nerve is. And I kind of put my hand on the skin, but I don't press down because I know where the nerve is. And then I flex up and then I feel where the nerve is. And I feel if it flipped over and you'll feel it unstable flip up anteriorly. Okay. And so say, you know, we have our patient and we went through all these exam maneuvers. We think it's cubital tunnel. We're not necessarily 100% sure. I know you mentioned briefly a little bit earlier about it, about um, a nerve conduction and velocity tests or EJ electrodiagnostic studies. Do you ever use these in your practice or, or not? Or what, what's, um, what is there? Yeah. So I only use them when I'm confused. So if there's something else I'm trying to rule out, like if they're a diabetic patient, and I'm more worried about this being, you know, some type of diabetic neuropathy, or if I'm worried about this being cervical and I need to rule that out, but I would not do it if it's in a patient that has a clinical diagnosis, because that's what this is, is a clinical diagnosis. Clinical diagnosis. And okay. when you get an EMG, I've had a lot of them be um, uh, false uh, negatives before. Mm. And then what do you do with that piece of information? You just basically said you gave him a diagnosis and then you get an EMG that says that it's not the right diagnosis, but you still believe it's cubital tunnel. So you set yourself up for failure, especially with the insurance company who now doesn't mm. want to pay for the surgery because again, this is a dynamic compression. So some people, when they get their EMG, it's done in extension and it doesn't catch what's going on in flexion. So um, until it's, it's, you know, the denervation of the nerve has, um, has progressed. And I've had multiple patients um, who came in uh, with pain around their elbow and it's not the exact perfect picture of cubital tunnel. And then we ended up releasing their nerve and then they, um, they're doing better. And then, you know, I would have been in a bad situation if I had just followed their EMG, which was negative. So um, I stopped getting them when I know it's cubital tunnel. Okay, that makes sense. And are there any, are there now, any like- board collections, let me just back up. If you're in board collection, yeah, go for it. get, you know, I think it's reasonable to get the EMGs, but I think that's starting to change. I mean, we used to get them for like cubital tunnel, um, but you know, the, the criteria has changed since then. So EMGs are kind of falling a little bit out of favor. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, and, and are there any classification systems for uh, cubital tunnel that you use? I know there's some, a lot out there, but are there any that you use? Yeah. McGowan's probably the more common of the ones that are used. I don't use either of them. I kind of do okay. it more of my own um, Konamika classification. It's not I like it. Yeah. It's not real. You'll have your own classifications in your practice. <laughs> um, but okay. I just look for what I think is mild, moderate, severe and mild for me is, you know, they're having night symptoms. Moderate is night and day symptoms and um, severe is when they start having the muscular weakness. So they're dropping things, intrinsic, wasting, um, clawing, those types of things. Okay. And, and so what is your treatment algorithm? What, what patients are you starting off with non-operative treatment? And then what is your non-operative treatment? Yeah. So anyone who's mild, um, so they're not, they're, they're having symptoms at night. They're usually people show up, they're like, something's going on. It doesn't happen every night. It's not bothering me, but sometimes it does bother me. You know, I just kind of want to know what it is. And, um, those patients, I will do non-operative treatment. And those are, um, I will give them a heel bow, which is that compression sleeve with the pillow um, on the posterior aspect. Usually give it for patients with like olecranon bursitis. So they stop hitting the back of their elbow. Um, but I tell them to take that, that pillow and I tell them to put it in the antecubal fossa so they can't do high flexion at night when they're sleeping, causing that compression of the nerve. Um, the problem with having them in extension splints is they wear them for about five seconds and then they take them off because nobody can sleep with their arms out like nope. the letter T, like it's just not possible. <laughs> like the funny. Um, and, the, and they have talked about doing rolling up towels. There's been studies that show that that works and you just tell them to put a towel and then tape it around their elbow. But I can't imagine somebody doing that every single night. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is I tell them to do activities of modification. So a lot of these people do hyper um, are in bed and they're doing their, their texting or whatever, and they have their elbows in hyperflexion. 
it's just not a healthy thing to do. So I tell these people, you know, maybe it's time to get off your phone when you're in bed or with like reading. If you have like, you know, you had to sit up and you, you use something to help you with reading, et cetera. Um, um, you know, less flexion when they're, when they're doing things so that they kind of give their elbows and their cubital tunnel a little bit of a break. Um, I generally find that the majority of patients um, who are my, who are moderate end up and obviously severe are going to want to have surgery quicker. And mild is always like kind of a crapshoot when I see them in clinic, if they're going to come back for surgery or not. Okay. And so those are the, you know, those are the patients that we're starting off treating non-operatively. Now, what are some of the operative indications and then what are the operative options available to these patients with cubital tunnel syndrome? Yeah. So they're having muscular changes. So atrophy, or if they're starting to have clawing, um, if it's progressed, again, these are the cubital tunnel is one of those things that likes to progress really, really quickly. So I always tell patients, if you're starting to have symptoms that are starting to progress, you need to come back quickly so that we can talk about surgical release. Um, and so if they're, you know, if they're starting to have, um, uh, increased numbness, they're having a Warmberg sign, just anything that shows that they're having, uh, lots of ability to do ADLs. It's like a red flag in my head. Okay. Um, also uh, they have nerve instability because it's not like their nerve is going to all of a sudden become stable. So that's another reason to do surgery quicker. And what are some of the surgical options? I know we we're talking before this about some of the things that you do or that you've trained yourself to do uh, in your own practice, but can we go through some of the surgical options for patients with cubital tunnel syndrome? Yeah, I've had quite, quite the tenuous relationship with cubital tunnel in my practice. Um, I think that I just struggled a lot with some of my patients postoperatively. And, you know, it took me a really long time uh, to feel comfortable with cubital tunnel. And I, I was kind of humbled by it because I never expected that it was going to be cubital tumble of all things to humble me. But, you know, you'll find in practice. <laughs> never know. Yeah, you never know. And you're like, really, cubital tunnel? This is the one. Um, but I just, I, I realized um, I was trained to do, you know, um, in situ decom open decompressions um, with uh, if there's any nerve instability to then do a um, uh, some type of transposition. And I was taught to do a fascial like trap door. And then for my revisions, that's when I would do a submuscular uh, transposition. Now, I'm going to take a step back to doing your insight to decompressions. These have become very, very popular in probably the last 10 years or so. And that inside to decompression is just releasing those five points of compression and, and anything else that's compressing the nerve that you find in there. Um, and then not mobilizing the nerve. So you don't want to do a circumferential dissection. It causes a lot of post-operative neuritis. Um, and you don't, you can obviously cause it to be, um, unstable afterwards. So you kind of want to make your incision for uh, when you go through the cubital tunnel posteriorly. So you can leave a leaflet to keep the nerve from uh, uh, snapping anteriorly. Now, have you seen this done with one incision or I feel like I've seen some people do this with two incisions. I know some do it endoscopically, um, but what in your experience, what have you seen? So a lot of people do it with one, one large or, or mini mini incision. Um, and you can, if you do a really good dissection and you put um, an army navy or a speculum in there, you can get really proximal and distal. Um, I now do it endoscopically. Uh, I just found that the less touching of the ulnar nerve, the better. As I said before, you don't want to do any circumferential dissection. I have found that just releasing those points of compression is really all you need to do. Um, uh, I have found with my endoscopic that they go back to work quicker. They have a smaller incision. They're happier with their outcomes. I haven't seen um, any issues with, you know, knock on wood of cutting the nerve. I feel like I can see everything. And actually it takes me about six or seven minutes to do a cubital tunnel release endoscopically. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it really decreases the time, um, which is, you know, not the reason why you should do a surgery is because it's quicker. Um, you should do something because you think it's better. Um, the other thing is I have changed my practice over time from doing a nerve block 
to just doing it under local. And that stems from just some of the issues we had at our university where um, they were not doing post-operative blocks for us. So I was, I was taught um, you should do, you know, your release under general. And then when the patient wakes up, you do a exam on the nerve. And if the nerve is okay, they get a post-operative block. Well, we didn't have the ability to do post-operative blocks with our anesthesia team. So I either had the option of doing it preoperatively um, or none. So the problem with doing it preoperatively is I couldn't examine my nerve. And so I started just doing it with local around the elbow. And now I do under Mac um, anesthesia with a little bit of local around the, the nerve. And I put it the local in preoperatively in the pre-op area. And by the time they get into the operative area, they're, um, they're numb enough that I can do my endoscopic release and get them out of there. And then they don't need a block at all at the end of the case. So that's- Do you just use a, a mix of lidocaine and marcaine or what do you use? Yeah, so I, I do uh, Wallant. And the reason why I feel so comfortable is just because I do a lot of procedure room um, cases in general, like you know fractures and cubital tunnel. I even, or sorry, not cubital tunnel, my endoscopic- carpal tunnels, I do them purely under local as well. But I use the same um, uh, mixture that most people use, which is lidocaine 1% with epi. And I use nine cc's of that and then one cc of sodium bicarb. Um, and the reason why I use the sodium bicarb is it neutralizes the lidocaine, which is, um, is acidic, which is why it burns when you, when you inject it. So if I take you back to your chemistry days, if you have a acid oh, and a base, it. it becomes neutral. So it's not supposed to be as painful when you do the injection, when you have that sodium bicarb involved. Um, and that's why you put that in there. So it's actually really a painless injection. Hmm, neat. I, my, my orgo chem teacher would be proud right now, but yeah, uh, I know. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's enough. We won't talk anymore about it. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the next question becomes, uh, what if you get, what do you, you do with an unstable nerve? And so, um, if you have an unstable nerve, that's when you should do an ulnar nerve transposition. And the way to tell if you have an unstable nerve is, well, you should test them the always in the preoperative area. I, I don't care what my exam was in the clinic. I want to know what my exam is in the pre-op area because it always is different. Um, and then, um, I will check the patient after we've decompressed the nerve to see if it now is unstable. And if it's unstable, I generally will do a sub uh, cutaneous or subcuticular um, transposition. Um, and the reason why is I think I can make a really good fat flap and put it right underneath the fat and, and it doesn't irritate the nerve. I was having problems with my fascial flaps causing some irritation in the nerve um, for whatever reason. So I don't, I don't use the fascia anymore, but um, you know, maybe in your hands, you will be more successful but I found just using um, some subcutaneous tissue. That's all I need. So you, you know, first, you know, kind of line of treatment inside to decompression, pretty much decompressing the nerve or releasing all those fascial um, areas of, of, you know, tightness of what you think it may be. Uh, this can be done either open or endoscopic. Your choice, your treatment is you typically do this endoscopic under some local anesthesia and MAC or minimal alveolar concentration. And if it's a hypermobile nerve, you will do an ulnar nerve transposition, kind of put in the fat or kind of that that, that fascial tissue. And, and and so, what are the what are difference between an inside to decompression and then an ulnar nerve uh, transposition? Like, what is there any difference between the two? You, know, you always hear about you always hear about. It. Yeah. So the inside to is just de decompressing it and letting the nerve stay posterior because it's stable there. With the anterior transposition is you're bringing the nerve anteriorly. And when you do that anterior transposition, you have a couple of different options. Some people put it in the muscle, some people put it under the fascia, and some people do it under the um, uh, subcutaneous tissue. And I have found that if you take that subcutaneous tissue, it, they do just fine. Um, and that's kind of a dealer's choice. I do the submuscular as my um, revision. And the reason why is when you do a submuscular transposition, you have to take the flexors off of the medial epicondyle and you bring the median nerve or so the ulnar nerve medially towards the median nerve. Like you in the traditional um, 
uh, description of doing a submuscular transposition, you brought the ulnar nerve all the way over to the median nerve. So that's in the middle of the, of the, um, um, of the forearm there. So, um, you know, that's, that's a pretty big procedure to do off the bat. And so I save that for my patients who need revisions. Now there are some people who go and do a submuscular every single time. And I don't think there's anything per se wrong with that because, you know, that's the gold standard least amount of revisions with it, but it's also the most invasive. And if you can get away with patients having an in-situ decompression with, a, with little to no um, disruption or, or irritation of the nerve, that may be in your hands more successful. So um, I think there's been less of a push to using submuscular in a primary setting and to use it more in a revision setting. Okay, so submuscular, like you just said, you kind of release that whole flexor mass, uh, flexor pronator mass and repair it over the nerve. And this is typically, you'd use this in a revision setting um, the other, uh, you know, types of, of transposition, you can transfer, transpose the nerve um, anteriorly and put it in kind of some cutaneous tissue or put it kind of anterior to, you know, a little fascial sling. Now, what patients do you do? We, I know we spoke about, you know, inside to decompression and, you know, kind of the, well, studies that I've looked at have showed that decompression and ulnar nerve transposition kind of give you equivalent outcomes but we haven't touched on medial epicondylectomies yet. Do you do this? And if you do, what patients do you do this in? Or have you seen this done at any time? You know, it's funny. I don't do these. And I feel like they're so, and I'm sure someone's going to write you hate mail for this. Uh, I feel like it's really <laughs> archaic. Um, and I feel like it's, it's almost like it should be of historical nature, but it seems like there are a lot of people who still do it, which is like surprising to me. Um, and the reason why I'm not a big fan of it is one of the complications that can happen from it is you can cause elbow instability. <laughs> and that's like a huge complication a to give thing. a patient yeah. is to make their elbow unstable. Like that's the last thing you want to do with them is say, hey, I, you know, I accidentally, you know, you know, disable your, your elbow. And now we're going right. to have to do, you know, possible ligament reconstruction. And then, you know, if I was a patient, I'd be like, what were you doing in there? Right. So, so Makes that's sense. why I don't do it, but you know, I'm sure there's somebody in there who's like, it's really simple. It, you know, it, anyone can do it, but it's just not my, my toolbox. Yeah. It's almost like, well, we took care of the numbness, but, um, <laughs> Just so you know, right. I was a little unstable now. Yeah, um, it's a great way to collect some more CPT codes, I guess. Sure. <laughs> and so I guess kind of comparing techniques, because I always see this as sections and like articles and books on, you know, when we're trying to talk about a little different techniques for, uh, for you know, the operative treatment of cubital tunnel syndrome. Is there anything that you can, you know, is any differences between any of the different, you know, techniques that we've just discussed, we talked about? Uh, transposing it. And then we talked about transposing anteriorly and in, into subcutaneous tissues, uh, intramuscular, where you, and the other one where you kind of do a fascial sling. And then we also talked about decom, uh, inside to decompression, open versus endoscopic. So, and we also talked about the media epicondylectomy, which, uh, which we don't necessarily do too often, but kind of comparing these techniques or any, any high points that we should know about or any high testable points. Yeah. I mean, the thing is all of them work. And so you're not, you know, it's not the end of the world if you use any of these. So they all work and that's important what to know. I think the biggest thing is if you're going to do in situ decompression, make sure the nerve isn't unstable afterwards. If the neighbor, if the nerve is unstable, um, you have to do some type of transposition. Otherwise they're all um, very effective in providing um, relief of symptoms at mostly usually the year marker. Um, uh, but I would tell you that with the submuscular, um, that is going to be your salvage procedure and you should use that as your in revision cases. Okay. And, and Dr. Contemaker, you know, for what is, I guess, what is your experience in patients that have post-traumatic cubital tunnel syndrome and does that change anything as far as outcomes or management with these patients? 
Yeah, actually, I think I see a lot more post-traumatic cubital tunnel than I thought I would. And it could be just because I do a lot of elbow surgery in general. And so I see a lot of patients who had some type of elbow trauma and then come to me with the, the, um, the markers of what happened to them or the, the end points of their trauma. Um, and one of those things is I will have a lot of patients who had like um, even injuries to their shoulder and all the swelling just drained with, with gravity into their elbow. And that swelling caused scarring of the nerve. And wow, okay. these patients, usually when you see them, um, they usually seem to be more progressive with their symptoms. And um, when I see them, they're usually not mild. They're usually more moderate, severe with more scar tissue around the nerve. And um, if it's really bad, if they have really, really bad cubital tunnel where it's like severe, 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 um, it's not unreasonable to go straight to a submuscular because you don't want to operate on these people again. But um, generally speaking, these patients have a higher rate of revision um, and they have less complete resolution with surgery, but they generally seem to be pretty satisfied because you've given them some relief of their symptoms and they, they're coming from a, like a really bad, severe symptoms to mild and that to them is enough. Yeah, it's like a world of a world of difference, you know, in, in their, yeah, uh, in the, you know, their experience. Yeah, and and we've mentioned salvage procedures, you know, a couple of times. We were talking about kind of our submuscular transpositions. Um, I guess how are you seeing, you know, these revision surgeries a lot, or what in what setting are you seeing these revision, uh, these revision procedures needing to take place? Yeah, so sometimes I'll see them. Um, you know, after elbow fractures, um, uh, it's just a big scar ball in there and yeah. you're just trying to find the nerve and you're like, you just spent all this time feeling like you just devascularized this nerve because you just spent all this time taking it out of a big scar ball. And then when you put it underneath the nerve or underneath the muscle, that nerve is getting uh, blood supply from the muscle. So it, it's like a really healthy bed to put it in. Um, or if you have patients who have, you know, um, heterotopic ossification of the bone there, you, um, um, you want to put it where somewhere it could be safer. You can put it in the muscle or submuscular. Those are some of the reasons to do it, but it's really to protect that nerve. Okay. And, and what are some of these salvage procedures? Uh, you know, I've always, you know, heard about tendon and nerve transfers and, um, I always hear them and I, I think I just try to memorize what it is, but I try to understand why, uh, why you transfer this nerve to, to this nerve. Um, so can you quickly just, just touch on before we wrap up here, touch on some of these, um, salvage yeah, procedures. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So people who have like really, um, bad cubital tunnel, people will actually do a cubital tunnel release and then also do a nerve transfer at the same time. So you don't have to do it as a salvage procedure. You can okay. do it at the same time as your cubital tunnel release. And people will take um, the AIN and they will bring it over to the ulnar nerve distally um, at the wrist as a supercharge to help with um, some type of increase in uh, nerve function. So you'll see that happening more and more as an augment to people's cubital tunnel releases in severe patients. Um, but you will see when people have really bad um, uh, ulnar nerve injury that tendon transfers are your next tried and true um, salvage procedure. Um, you know, the biggest thing is you gotta figure out what they functionally need. And with the claw um, correction, basically you're trying to do is you're trying to get the fingers out of that hyperextension position to, and when you get the MCPs out of that hyperextension um, position, the, the, the fingers become more functional. And so what you're doing um, for me is I do it through the A1 fully and you pick a, the, a slip of the FTS and you bring it around the A1 fully and it brings that MCP from a hyperextended position into a neutral or a little bit flex position because the hands are more successful in a flex position, it's stronger than it is in that hyperextended position. So they're able to use their fingers better. Wait, um, so for that, you said you, you go under the A1 pool and you grab the FDS and you bring it, you attach it where? Um, you bring it over through the A1 pulley. So 
Okay. Um, other ways of doing it is also you can um, attach it to the lateral bands, um, but I like the A1 fully technique. That's just the way I was trained. And I think it, you have enough length to just bring it around and it helps bring um, uh, the, uh, the, the MCPs out of hyperextension. Okay. Um, and then also you have to think about the other thing. So you, the other big thing is that strength of the, um, of the thumb because you've lost that adductor. So that's what we were talking about before with the Fromonts where you're doing um, uh, the FPL as a trying to use that as um, compensation. Um, but there's other tendon transfers you can use to create a new adductor so that you can get that pin strength back. Mm, okay. And did you ever use any, I know we were talking about tendon transfer. Do you do any nerve transfers? Um, you know, I, I still, I actually will for my subvert, severe cases, I will do that AIN um, supercharge. Um, and I've had it actually be really successful. Um, a few of my patients, just because we have a lot of ballistics um, on the South side of Chicago, and yeah. I've had quite a few nerves taken out and we've done um, nerve reconstructions and then using the AIN to the motor branch of the ulnar nerve to give it a little extra juice while we're waiting for that um, nerve repair, I'm sorry, ah. nerve reconstruction to, okay. to kick in. So that's what you mean by supercharge. You just bring that nerve while, while another nerve is regenerating and you know going through its degeneration or its process you connect that other nerve to that yeah. to help it yeah you're giving it more stimulate it. system that's the way of thinking of it we the hand surgeons especially our our nerve droids love to make this sound way more complicated <laughs> than it is but just think about it you're bringing more you know if you think of your nerves as as your electricity you're just bringing a lot a little bit more electricity over to the the hurt nerve um, to give a little bit more juice. And so that's what you're doing. You're supercharging it. You're bringing that, that AIN, which at that point is, you know, it does not do anything like truly functional for the hand. It's sensory to the, um, to the wrist capsule at that point, you bring it over and you bring that extra nerve, um, stimulation over to the motor, um, part of the ulnar nerve. And it stimulates that, that motor branch so that it starts to function as well. Okay. Well, uh, well Dr. Kantimika, uh, I think this has been a, a great talk. Uh, I learned a lot about uh, cubital tunnel. I hope the listeners learned a, a bunch as well. Uh, are there any last parting words that you, or things that you definitely want people to take away when thinking about cubital tunnel syndrome and working up and treating it? Yeah, I think it's important that you, you know, you pay attention because I think we fall into this category of, oh, they have trigger finger, they have carpal tunnel, they have cubital tunnel. And that's when you miss things. Um, that's when you miss your Guillain's canal. That's when you miss it. You miss your cervical radiculopathy. And I think it's really important that you listen to these patients. Um, surgically, I think it's really important that you get hemostasis before you close because I've seen a, quite a few patients who bled after surgery and they got these big hematomas and then they have recurrence of their symptoms. So mm. make sure you get hemostasis um, and, you know, just keep on learning like you guys are doing right now with these podcasts. It's awesome. Well, well that's great, Dr. Contamika. And uh, again, I think this was a great podcast. At the end of our episodes, we always give um, our, our guests away. If you want to share social media, you want people to follow you on or an email or, or anything that you want the people to know, uh, we always, you know, leave the floor open. If you want uh, people to follow you on anything, you can say that. Or if not, that's completely fine. Totally up to you. Yeah, I, I am. I have embraced social media. Um, wow. Yeah, it's um, I'm at the very edge of being a millennial, like just right there, <laughs> you know, where I'm, I'm, I'm not good with computers yet. I'm supposed to be. But um, uh, I do have a Twitter account. It's Megan Contimika, so M-E-G-A-N, Conti, C-O-N-T-I, Mika, M-I-C-A. Um, and then my uh, Instagram account handle is uh, Chicago underscore hand, so Chicago hand. Um, either way, you can contact me through either um, Twitter or through Instagram. I do check them, not always regularly, but I try to check for them 
kind of frequently. So you can always contact me that way. Well, Dr. Kantamika, again, this has been a uh, great episode. I hope you enjoyed being on the episode. And for those listening, I hope you all enjoyed listening to this episode. Please do not forget to hit that subscribe button and uh, go and leave a review and let us know how much you enjoyed our episode on cubital tunnel syndrome. Leave it in iTunes or whatever you listen on. And until next time.